Well, thanks for that reading, Peter. Uh, we're looking at this topic of guidance, as you've heard, as we continue in our series uh, in Proverbs. And it's one of those topics, isn't it, that um, can be confusing at times uh, for Christians, um, something that we can grapple over. So I think it's a really important one to think well about. Uh, so let me encourage you um, to pray with me now. If you are visiting or new with us tonight, it's great to have you with us. Uh, my name's Rod, I'm one of the pastors, and um, we're going to look at those two passages and try and understand what God is promising us in terms of guidance. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here tonight. Uh, we thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you for your word, which is living and active. And uh, We pray that you'll challenge us afresh. Help us to think clearly, to have your perspective on how it is uh, that you offer us guidance. And help us to live in the light of that in a way that pleases you and honours you in what you have already revealed for us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Ah, guidance. It's one of those ones, isn't it, where we really would like the answer at times. I can remember when I was about to ask uh, my wife, Christine, out on a date for the first time, and I was wanting some sign or circumstances to confirm that this was really the right thing to do. And so I found myself praying prayers as we went to youth group or met after church on a Sunday night, saying, look, God, if this is really meant to happen and I'm meant to ask her out, then can... Like, she'd come up and chat to me at the end of um, supper or something, and then I'll know that she's the one. Or, you know, if we reach into the chip bowl, our hands might just touch each other, and that will be a clear sign that she's the one, and everything will be right after that. It gets really bad, doesn't it, if those things don't happen for a while, and you think, what are you doing, God? Can I just pray that our cars will park in the same car park tonight? You know, that's pretty broad. And then she's parked out on the street. And, uh, uh, look... It's a struggle because we're wanting uh, to make a right decision. I think as I did those things, I'd been a Christian for a while, and I was really keen to be in the will of God. I wanted uh, to make a wise decision. I realized that if a relationship started and it went well, it might lead to marriage, and it did. And so it was important to be prayerful and to think about it and to bring these things before God. But frankly, I was just shy, and I was fearful of rejection, and I would have read into the slightest positive interaction that we'd had anyway. And so really, these kind of prayers were often just superstitious, weren't they? I guess I was like Gideon in the book of Judges. I was putting out a fleece and hoping that God might do something, and that would be my guidance. But is that how it's supposed to work? Is that how we should operate as Christians? How do we seek God's guidance today? What does he promise us? How can we have the right expectations? Well, that's the question we're going to consider tonight. It's sometimes been a confusing topic, as I mentioned, for believers. So we want to explore this so that we can have a clear perspective, God's perspective, on this question of how should we seek God's guidance? How do we seek God's guidance? I've got three answers for you, as all good sermons do. And the first answer is this, by knowing and obeying his word. How do we seek God's guidance? By knowing and obeying his word. Have a look with me again at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 from our first reading. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Uh, right off the bat there, the wise path in terms of guidance is to trust God, not to trust your own thinking or understanding. Solomon states in verse 5 that we should trust the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding. 
And of course, as we've been seeing in this book of Proverbs, the heart of wisdom in the book of Proverbs is to fear the Lord. And we've seen that that phrase means to stand in awe of God, to recognise that he's our creator and also our judge, and that therefore we need to respond to what he reveals to us. We need to heed his word, his instruction. We need to obey his commands. And that's actually what's being expressed in that phrase, submit to him. Or you might have a translation that says in verse 6, Acknowledge him. In all your ways, acknowledge him or submit to him. But that phrase is actually literally know him. It just says know him. How can we know God? Well, we can only know God through what he reveals. And he reveals himself to us in the form of his written word, scripture, and ultimately the person of his son. And so if I want to know God, I need to know his word and I need to obey his word to live by it. It's this sense of complete dependence on God that assumes his word is the starting point for all truth rather than depending upon human wisdom. And the wise words of the Bible that give direction to our lives come with a general promise, did you notice, in the last part of verse 6. If you do make knowing God's will central to your life, if um, part of every decision you make, then he will guide you. Notice we're told, he will make your paths straight or literally smooth the way. It's an encouragement to expect God's help, God's guidance as we bring things before him. Now that's not a guarantee that everything will work out in our life, that every time we make a decision that it will be just the right decision and everything will roll smoothly for us. No, not at all. Remember, proverbs are probabilities, not ironclad promises. Proverbs are probabilities, not ironclad promises. And so it's not a guarantee that everything will go perfectly. We have to make wise decisions. We have to use the mind that God has blessed us with through the assistance of his word, the Bible. True guidance lies in his wisdom through his word and not in my limited understanding. Now, frankly, we get lots of opportunities every day to put this into practice. If you're a believer here tonight, then as you go through each day, there are lots of tests and decisions to make along the way, aren't there, where you can uh, lean on God's uh, teaching in his word or our own understanding or wisdom in a situation. I had lots of um, opportunities recently in December of last year when we went on the short-term mission trip to Bangladesh. It's sometimes when we're in more extreme situations that we feel this more uh, urgently. Um, I remember um, feeling this sense uh, when we were travelling around in Bangladesh on the roads. Um, Entrusting our lives to God in the crazy traffic was a daily occurrence. God's word tells me that he's in charge, that he's sovereign, that he can watch over my life, that he can protect me, that I'm in his hands. But it was all I could do sometimes to sit in the back seat while we remained on the wrong side of the road constantly, (laughs) um, wishing that I could be holding the steering wheel so I had some control over what might happen in the next few seconds. Um, In Bangladesh, they drive on the left-hand side of the road, so that's a good start. Uh, I was in tune with that. But I found we spent most of the time on the right-hand side because there's lots of big trucks and buses, you know, that are slow, so you need to overtake them. And, well, you can overtake them with impunity. It doesn't really matter. There's not always marked lines anyway. And the only thing that will stop you continuing to go out is if a bigger object is coming the opposite way, right? And so unless there's a truck or a bus coming at you, then you just keep overtaking and off you go. 
After about half an hour of this, in a long trip south at one point for about eight hours, I decided it was better if I didn't look out the front window and see what was happening. I just looked out the side because I realised that there was people in more danger than we were in the van, and that was the poor rickshaw drivers or cyclists that were coming the other way because they were a smaller object. And so if we were in the right lane and they were coming rightly down the left side, well, they just had to disappear off into the bush or the dirt or something because we weren't going to pull in for them. This is how things work. Well... You know, we're taking our life in our hands, it might be said at times. And I, I really did learn quickly that these drivers that we had were very skilled. They could navigate this bedlam. If I had actually taken the wheel, we would have been in big trouble. My life would have been in far greater danger because I had no clue how to navigate what they were doing. It all came back to trusting God's sovereign control rather than leaning on my own limited understanding. Trust. Well, look, as we apply this first point to ourselves, uh, we need to have the right expectations about how God will guide us. Because if I say to you, well, look, the Bible is our number one option. Here's our guidebook that God has given us. Then often we race to the unlikely examples, don't we, as we think about the issue of guidance. Because we know that God has done so many unusual and unique things down through the centuries. So I'm sure you're aware that God spoke to Moses in a burning bush, Exodus 3, that God spoke to Moses in a storm and in lightning and thunder in Exodus 19, that he spoke to Elijah in a still small voice in 1 Kings, that he wrote on the palace walls for King Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, uh, that he had people casting lots, that he sent angels, that uh, 101 different things happened, dreams and visions to Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. And so we sometimes recall those stories and we think, well, I want God to do that in my life. Then things will be really clear. We even would like to demand that, that it happen in that way. There's a few problems with that. Uh, one of them is that we're often selective about the ones we choose. So you'll have people that will say to you, well, you, know, you should wait for the still small voice like Elijah. But you don't have many people coming up to you saying, you really should go for donkey speaking. That worked well for Balaam, and so just pray that God will send a donkey to you tomorrow and the problem will be solved. Or we don't have people saying to us, you know, writing on the wall, hopefully when you go home there'll be a message on the lounge room wall and God will have solved that issue that you've been thinking about. See, we're often selective, aren't we, in the ones that we run to as an example of guidance. But the fact is that all of these descriptions in the Old Testament are there because they are unique. That's why they've been recorded. They're one-offs. You know, at the end of each of those sections, we don't get a normative statement, a prescriptive statement that says, this story that's just been described to you is normal and will occur in the life of any believer. You don't get to the end of Balaam's donkey rebuking him and it says, and for all those who trust in God, donkeys will speak to you regularly. There's never a statement like that. And so we need to realise that we're not actually promised that. Yes, God can do anything, but the question is, what has he promised to guide us with today? Are those things simply descriptive or are they prescriptive? It's an important question. Another question is that, worst of all, this method of reading, particularly the Old Testament, ignores the arrival of Jesus. And we'll come back to that later. But we have to put Jesus into this picture of guidance. And so the question is, how should we expect God to guide us? And I want to say to you first up tonight, you don't need Gideon's fleece. You don't need Gideon's fleece. 
but you do need the living word of God that he promises to guide you through that he has given you. Second answer to the question. If we're going to answer this question, how do we seek God's guidance today? Secondly, by committing our plans to the Lord. By committing our plans to the Lord. Have a look again at Proverbs 16, verses 1 to 4, the second reading we had. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All the person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked, for a day of disaster. So the word plan in verse 1 there is what we would think it means to um, have an order or a way of understanding things, placing things in order. And so the gist of the proverb in verse 1 is that despite all of our human freedom to plan, that God calls us to make decisions and think and plan, in the end we actually only advance God's purposes, God's designs. See, not only does he sovereignly control the future, unlike ourselves, but he even knows the motives behind our plans, verse 2. He knows whether our motives are good or bad for whatever outcome we're seeking. And so in verse 3, it makes perfect sense, therefore, to place our plans in his safe hands because he's going to determine the outcome, verse 4. You notice in verse 4, there are no loose ends in God's world, that every action will have its proper outcome that God will see unfolds. He will match every action with its proper fate. And so you might say, well, maybe it's not worth making any plans then. If God just is going to work things as he works them. No, not at all. That doesn't mean we should, should not make plans. God created us in his image. He gave us a mind to think and to be reasoning, reasoning beings. We're responsible for our actions. We have to think through issues and make decisions. Even though in the end, and it should be a great assurance for us, that God will determine the outcomes that God truly is in control. And so it only makes sense that we turn to him as we make decisions, as we shape our plans, that we commit them to him. But I guess the question then is, what does it look like to commit our plans to the Lord? What would that mean? Does it just, um, we bring along our statement to God and we just want it rubber stamped? I'd like the following things to happen in the next 12 months. God, if you could just okay that, that would be really good. Well, the question of how do we commit our plans to the Lord, the word for commit in verse 3 is literally roll, as in roll something down a hill. It's a, it's a strange, it's an unusual idiom in the Hebrew. Um, lots of people like to use the phrase, this is how we roll today, and so this is how you could use it in a Christian sense. This is how we roll. We commit all our plans to the Lord. We think about everything. We bring it to him before we take a step. That's what it's literally saying. Um, and so... It involves God's word, as we've seen in the first um, point. It's his supreme guide to us. But surely also it infers prayer. It doesn't actually use the word prayer in this sentence, but it's inferred strongly. As we commit things to the Lord, his people always seek his help by praying, asking for his direction, for his assistance as we make plans. Sometimes we lack 
wisdom, don't we, though? You say, yeah, well, I pray about things all the time, but I'm still not sure about what decision to make or what the outcome's going to be. And so you know, I'm not, I don't often have the wisdom to know what decision to make, even after I've prayed. Well, the answer to that is also prayer, did you know? Uh, James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, there is an ironclad promise. That's not a proverb from Solomon. This is a promise, a statement in James 1. Bring things to God, pray for his wisdom, and he will give us wisdom. You may say, well, does that mean I'll get a direct answer? You know, there'll be an envelope in the letterbox tomorrow with the answer to my prayer from the night before. No, it's not saying that. Um, but what it is saying is that God will be at work, that he will help us as we make that decision. Indeed, everything works out in accordance with his will. And God can guide us along the path of our lives in ways which are often way beyond our understanding. It may not even be clear to us at the time. As we've seen, he can use anything and everything to achieve his plans. In fact, he can even turn our hearts or our minds towards the course that he's got in mind for us, rather than perhaps the one that we were planning to set out on. Have a look at Proverbs 16 verse 9 again on the screen. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Or Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. See, what this is saying again is that nothing can thwart God's plans, that he truly is in charge, that nothing will take him by surprise. Maybe you woke up Friday morning and you'd been missing all the stuff in the media and you were shocked that some guy from the Shire was now the Prime Minister. How could that be? But I can tell you one person that wasn't shocked and that was God. He knew that was going to happen before it happened. Indeed, he had brought that to pass. See, God's ability to guide our lives behind the scenes can never be underestimated either. But this guidance is often only visible to us later as we look back with 2020 hindsight. Later as we look back, we can see God's hand at something and the way things unfolded and the way he had orchestrated events. Sometimes in the midst of it, that's not clear to us even then. Uh, like the saying says, we're in the forest, we can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, because we're in the midst of it, but as later we look back, it becomes clear. Let me give you an example of that. Um, my family and I moved down to serve here at Wollongong Baptist in December of 2006. I had no intention of coming to Wollongong ever. <laughs> that sounds terrible. I had visited the place, but I wasn't planning to come and serve at a church at Wollongong. Uh, we had a plan after Bible college that we would serve for four or five years um, in a church in Sydney, get some experience, and then we would go to country New South Wales where there was more need, where people often weren't willing to head. Everyone's happy to be in Newcastle or Sydney or Wollongong. That's why it's called New South Wales, right? Newcastle, Sydney, Wollongong. And, and so the rest of the state we don't care about. You know, There's very few people that want to go out there. We have to encourage our doctors or whoever it is. And it's the same with pastors. And so we'd planned to go to country New South Wales. I'd applied for jobs out in the Central West. I'd applied to a job in the Canberra region. I was not coming to Wollongong. In fact, the only reason I heard about the position here is that I rang up Sam Reeve, who was the pastor, and I said, 
Do you know about churches that were positions in need at churches like way down the south coast or in Canberra or just through his contacts? And his answer was, no, but we have a position here in Wollongong. And I was like, ah, oh, Wollongong's too close to Sydney. That's, that's, that's not my plan. Oh, well, maybe you want to think about it. I'll send you the information. Uh, we, we thought about it. We prayed about it. It just... Um, seemed that God was orchestrating things that we follow through on this. He kept steering us away from other things and back to Wollongong. Okay, we'll apply for this position. Let's see what God's doing. He can orchestrate whatever he wants. So we applied for the position. Uh, we were invited to come here. We've come and we've loved it. I would rather, <laughs> be rather not be anywhere but Wollongong. I'm certainly not rushing back to Sydney. Um, but... Let me say that only in hindsight could we see how God had been at work in those steps. I think even in the first nine months when we were here, I was still a bit uncertain. There are so many people that might come and serve in Wollongong. What about those needs elsewhere in the state? But after about nine months, Sam, who had been here for 10 years, announced he was disappearing to Melbourne. I thought, well, maybe that's why God has brought us here. There's things that are going to unfold in the next little while. See, we just don't always know. God's hand is involved but what we're called to do is to read and to pray to commit our plans to him and then to see how he will act in our life for he is sovereign and that brings me to a third answer to our question third answer how do we seek god's guidance by looking to jesus by looking to jesus this is where we bring christ in have a look with me at hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3 in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So notice in verse 1, it talks about in the past, how God in the past uh, revealed his ways to his people through many and various ways uh, through the prophets. This is talking about God's interaction with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, how he used spokesmen or prophets that he raised up to communicate his messages to his people. He has done this in the past. But notice verse 2, we shift from what was to now in Christ. And we have this phrase, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his son. What are these last days? Is this kind of end of the world language? Um, the last days is everything between Jesus' first coming and his second, his return. And so we're in the last days. The writer to the Hebrews was in the last days. Jesus had come, had died and risen and ascended back to heaven and had left his disciples to spread the message of the gospel. And in between his going and his promised return is those last days where the gospel continues to go out. And so that span of time continues even now. And so the story of God's revealing his plans, his revelation is unfolding down through the centuries. But it climaxes in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. There is a progression to Jesus, but there's no progression beyond Jesus. He is the last and the final word. He's the climax of God's revelation. 
Jesus is not just another messenger. He's not just like another prophet that's got something else to say. He is God's word in the flesh. He is God himself walking amongst us. How much more can God explain himself to us yet than in the person of his son? And so here is the final word on guidance in the coming of Jesus. How to think about this. Um, some of you uh, may be interested in cricket. Other may think that's uh, worse than watching the grass grow. And indeed, while you're playing cricket, you can see the grass grow because it's played on an oval and it's a long game. Um, but you may have heard of this guy, Don Bradman. Um, he's famous because, well, one, he's Australian and we like to talk about famous Australians. But also, secondly, because he was just that much better than anyone who ever played the game. He's considered arguably the greatest sports person, man or woman of all time, because he was twice as good as anyone in his chosen sport. So you might say, oh, Michael Jordan is the best basketballer. But was Michael Jordan twice as good as the next person? Probably say no. Well, we've got current champions who are just as good as him. Tennis, well, Federer is great. He's won so many uh, grand slams, but Nadal's just a few behind, and he's often lost to him more than he's won. Bradman ended up with his career over a 20-year period. He rewrote the record books from 1928 to 1948. And by the time he finished, he had a first-class average of over 100, and his test average was 99.94. If he just got four more runs in his final innings, he would have had a perfect average of 100. But you see, the next highest average of any great batsman is about 60. Most of the best ones only average about 50. He's twice as good as every other star player that ever was. He's the last word on batting, unsurpassable. Everything that came before him is just a shadow. Well, I know it's a poor comparison, but Jesus is the definitive word on God and his guidance for his people. He's the ultimate example of being in a class of his own. When Jesus comes, God has said all that he is needing to say in the person of his eternal son, See, so often when we talk about the issue of guidance, people will say, oh, you know, it's like I've got to wrestle this information out of God. It's like he's got information about my future, but he's just not letting me know. And so I've got to like beg him or plead him so that I might uh, live the life that I need to live, as if God's guidance is this mystery that he's withholding information from us. That's not how guidance is understood in the Bible. In fact, God's guidance is not a mystery. God wants to tell us over and over and over again, I've told you all that you need to know. Ephesians 1.3, every spiritual blessing in Christ has been given to us. We have everything we need in Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we have all that we need for life and godliness, everything in Jesus. There's nothing more that we need. There's nothing more that God needs to reveal to us. You might say, well, that leaves a few loose ends, though, as I think about this issue of guidance. Where does that leave me? Well, let me give you three applications as we finish as to how we should think about this subject. Firstly, I hope you've seen in Hebrews that Jesus is God's final word. And what I'm saying as I say that does not limit what God might do in your life tomorrow or any other person's life. If God wants to, he can um, interest you with the burning bush on the way home and give you a direct message. He can do anything. He has done it before. He's not limited by anything today. We know that in parts of the world where God's 
guidance for us in the form of his finished word is not available or it's suppressed and it's hard for people to access it, that he'll often intervene into that situation and make his message known through miraculous means. And so we hear about Muslims often who have come to faith in Jesus through dreams and visions that they've had. They can't read God's word. That doesn't matter. God can bypass that and just give them his word directly. Sure, God can do that or anything else. But the question that we've got to ask ourselves today is what has God promised to do for you in terms of guiding your life? What has he actually promised you? Not what he could possibly do. And the answer is that he has promised to reveal all that you need to know of him through his word, which is living and active. The record of Christ's life and all its implications in the Bible is the number one method for guiding your life. What are we saying about this final authoritative word of God and the person of his son if we're wanting something else? Yeah, well, I know about Jesus in the Bible, but I'd like a fresh revelation. I want God to give me a special um, word about what car I should buy or what um, job I'm going to take next week. That's a wrong way to think about guidance. We need to see that we have all we need already, that it's right here with us. And so often we're overlooking it. It's sitting on our shelf and it's gathering dust. I don't know if you know about Hearst Castle. Um, it's a famous uh, building in San Simeon in California in the US. I got to visit there in 1995. It is a really opulent establishment owned by William Randolph Hearst while he was alive. He was an American billionaire um, and he died in 1951. But he... Um, made his money selling newspapers. He was a newspaper publisher. And he had this grand vision of not only building this amazing castle, but filling it to the brim with super expensive artwork and antiques. He spent over a million dollars a year just collecting more artwork and antiques, and he's chock full in this place, plus lots more in storage. And so this was, a, I guess, an idea or a, a drive of his mother's that he inherited to do this, and he had his own agents that would just fly around the world finding pieces of art that he wanted. It's said that one day he was thumbing through an art magazine of some really expensive works, and he found one that he really wanted to get hold of. He thought this was just so important, he needed to have this piece, he wanted to hang it in his great drawing room in Hearst Castle. And so he calls his agent in, and he says, I have to have this piece of work, go and find it wherever it is. This guy flies around Europe and other places where he thought it would be located, trying to purchase this piece of artwork for Randolph Hearst, and eventually comes back to him a few months later and says, look, I can't find it. It's not for sale. I don't know where this piece is, but I cannot get hold of it. He said, I must have it. You have to go and find it. Sends him out again. He comes back a couple of months later and he says to him, Mr. Hearst, I have found the artwork. Ah, oh, amazing, wonderful. Where did you find it, he says. Well, actually, it was in your warehouse. Uh, you bought it a few years ago. You already have it. I think Christians can be like this with the Bible. And we have the ultimate revelation through God's word and through his son, and yet we often ignore it and go in search of other things when we already have what we need most. We have the most expensive item, as it were, right under our nose. And there's a second application that flows from this first one. And that is this, once we have the right expectations about how God will guide us, we need to realise that Christ is our guide who we should seek to follow. Remember, Christians are followers of Christ. 
And so we haven't been given an exact blueprint. Our problem is that we're often wanting an exact blueprint of our life. And God should be able to tell me exactly what's going to happen next year, um, next decade. I need to know who to marry, where to live, what job to have, so that I can perfectly map out my life. But nowhere in the Bible are we ever promised this. God does not promise you a map or a blueprint of your life. What he offers you is a guide to follow, the Lord Jesus. A compass by which we might direct our life. We've got to ask ourselves, why is it that we want a blueprint at times? Why do we think we need to know every little detail? Is it FOMO, that acronym, you know, fear of missing out? Or is it just fear of failure that somehow, you know, I've made a bad decision perhaps in the past and I'm so fearful that I'll make another one and so I just need to know exactly before I can take another step. I'm sort of paralysed by just having to get it right and so I can't make a decision. I just need God to tell me exactly Frankly, if you knew that kind of detail, you'd be God. You would know everything about your life. You'd have no need of faith. There would be no sense of stepping out one day after another and having to trust God with any moment of your life because you'd have it all under control and know it. That is not who we are or what we've been promised. The believer is meant to be following Jesus. And the way we do this is growing in our understanding of God's word and prayerfully meditating on it. More than that, we're surrounded by fellow believers, many of them further down the track in following Jesus, mature in their faith, who can give us good counsel and speak into the questions that we may have in our life. More than that, we've been granted the Holy Spirit if we've placed our trust in Jesus. And so we have these wonderful resources of God's word, the privilege of prayer, the Holy Spirit working in us, other believers to help us, and a mind that God has blessed us with so that we may make decisions. And so we need to step out in faith and make them. Now, a third application, a final one which flows from all of this, is to realise that God has revealed his moral will in the Bible. It's in black and white. What we have is his moral will. So there's some questions that are not questions. Should I go and steal from the shop? No. The Bible tells us do not steal. That one's covered for you. Our problem is that most of our questions that we get hung up about are not in the moral right or wrong category. They're over here in the wisdom category. Wise, unwise, but neither right nor wrong. So I could buy this bomb car and have lots of problems and it's a lemon, or I could buy a good car and have no problems for the next 20 years, but neither of them is a moral choice. If I buy the lemon, well, that's unwise decision, but it's not wrong. It doesn't matter what clothes I wear today or indeed even whether I work at BHP or I'm a teacher at the local school or whatever it might be. You see, God's great agenda for your life is your holiness. He wants to conform you to the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus. He's interested in how you live for Jesus in whatever job you work in, in whatever outfit you're wearing or whatever car you're driving. And so often we're hung up on the wisdom issues and what we have to realise in those is that God won't give us direct answers in his word. Yes, he'll give us some principles. We've got the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, some of the Psalms that can give us some helpful principles as we think about making wise decisions. But if I need to know tomorrow whether I should buy this computer or that computer, I'm not going to be look up a chapter and verse and find the answer, am I? What do I do at that point? Well, I use the mind that God has given me to make a wise choice. 
I might even pray about it. I'll try and think through my motivation for whatever I might be deciding on. Because I realise that God's big agenda for me is that I grow to be like his son. Christ is our guide in these last days. We need to follow him. We need to grow in holiness. We need to be ready for whatever decisions we have to make by saturating ourselves in God's word, by being prayerful people, by being those that are not unafraid to invite others to give us wise counsel, by knowing that God's spirit will help us, that we've been given so many great resources by God and we need to act upon them and to step out in faith and know that God in his perfect sovereign plan will unfold what he's going to unfold in our life. Now again, that doesn't mean that every decision will go perfectly. But you know, even decisions that aren't so wise, God will use to make us more like his son. You see how everything comes back to that. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift that is your word, the Bible. We thank you for granting us your spirit if we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of prayer that we can come before you at any moment. And we thank you that you promise to give us wisdom as we ask for it. We thank you too for being blessed with many brothers and sisters that can encourage us and give us their wisdom as well that you've guided them to. Lord, we thank you too that you've given us a mind to reason, that you've made us creative, responsible beings made in your image. Help us, Lord, to understand these resources that you've equipped us with and to make decisions that honour your word and that are pleasing to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.